welcome to episode 37 of Girls on Pop. I am Marie Nantunes, joined by a fellow co-host. I am Ashley Lynch. So we are back with a follow-up show to our best of 2022 list. Um, if you listened to the show a couple of weeks ago, we did count down our favorite movies of the year from 10 to 1. And that went on for like, that was like a three-hour marathon, which was a lot of fun, but we still had lots to talk about. So I think we were, th- we thought we were going to fit in like, okay, we'll rattle through our top 10 and then we'll get to all these, like, you know, the, the runner ups and, and other things we want to talk about. And it went on so long with like another episode. Yeah. I think that that was the best thing to do as well, though. It was so much fun recording that it's nice to get a little more in depth about some of the movies, even though I think we talked about most of them. Um, it was nice to revisit some of them because, I mean, there are some that I hadn't seen since the first time that I saw them. So it was nice to kind of touch base on those. But and I, just the massive diversity between our lists. I thought that totally, was awesome. Yeah, it totally was. I mean, it just goes to show like our tastes are very different. So it's always fun to see when things overlap or when they don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'll link to my uh top list of the year my list was actually like 17 titles long but if you were to look at the list a lot of the stuff that sort of came in my runner-up list we are had already talked about like some of them were on your list and some of them are just like they're big movies they don't need any more attention so i didn't dwindled my list my runner-up list from seven to five just to touch on a couple of the titles that i really really liked that could have made my list on any other day and just didn't on that particular day. Um, how, how many titles do you have on your runner-up list? Yeah, it's the same where it's like there's a bunch of – there were movies that were like, okay, these are big movies. But then most most of my list is like smaller movies that I think people overlooked just because I want to shine a light on them. Uh, in terms of movies, I've got like what? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven movies on here. Eight movies. Well, Eight movies you... and two TV series. That's what I've okay, got. Because I have, because I have like five TV series. So why don't you get, get us kicked off with some of the your your runner up movie titles? Okay, uh, the first runner up that I've got is the movie She Said. Uh, this is the uh, the dramatized true story of the New York Times reporters um, of uh, Jody Cantor, Megan Toey, who chased down the Harvey Weinstein story. Um, and got people to basically come on the record about Harvey Weinstein, which is no small feat in and of itself. You know, it was, uh, we all remember when that story broke, and it was a huge story. And the whole movie ends up, uh, it plays out like a very kind of like all the president's men sort of thing, where we spend the entire time with these two reporters who are just doggedly chasing down this one trail just trying to get anyone to go on the record about it and and how it kind of you know affects their lives and you know how far they're willing to go to get this story it's maybe not as consequential as something like um all the president's men and maybe it's also the fact that it's like it's a very recent story like the harvey weinstein story was only a few years ago you know, it's still very fresh, so maybe it feels a little bit soon to be kind of lionizing uh, this tale a bit. But it still is a really good story, and I think an important story. And it's told uh, very specifically from a female perspective, which is important, especially when you're dealing with the case of, you know, Harvey Weinstein being a serial rapist and using his power to cover that up for so many decades and still trying to 
definitely one of the, the more interesting parts of the movie are like when he is wielding that power to try to use against the New York Times to like scare them away from the story. And and it deals with a lot of like the lower structures of power that have a vested interest in protecting Harvey and how they have to get through those sort of gates to even get to Harvey. And it's uh it's a it's it's a really interesting watch, especially if you're you're interested in like how were they able to how how hard was it to make this whole thing actually come about? Um, it's and the performances in it, the lead performances, especially by Zoe Kazan, I thought were incredible in this movie. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, one of the things that I, there are two things in particular that I found really really interesting about the film. The first was just how long that. Uh, reporting period was like investigative reporting does not happen overnight and it's easy to forget in today's news cycle where things are like fresh for five minutes it's it's easy to forget how much work like months and years of work goes into breaking a story like this and i'm with you i think by far for me the most interesting parts of the entire film were those boardroom moments where you have like harvey's um lawyers uh, calling the New York Times, trying to like negotiate uh, some angle or some story idea, and it's just it, it's just so slimy, mm-hmm. and it really does kind of like shine a light on just what goes on behind the scenes in a lot of newsrooms. And I mean, there aren't a lot of newspapers left. Like the New York Times is still kind of like one of those beacons, and there are a few that are still doing that work, but. The reality of it is it's like a dying breed. And the fact that we get sort of like a, a modern behind the scenes look at what goes into investigative journalism, I think is not only really important, but it, it is a really, really great story that really needs more attention. Because I mean, you know, even beyond the whole Weinstein thing, this is still an ongoing issue that just continues to be problematic it, it's really solid like it, it it didn't make my list but for for nothing for not, no no for no like particular reason other than there were a lot of great movies last year yeah it's the type of film that is like absolutely catnip for me because i love all the president's band i love spotlight whenever you have a movie about journalists doing long-form investigative reporting especially if you can make it about something that actually really happened that it's, you know, it's, I, I absolutely love that stuff. It's, you'll get me, you'll get me out every time for that type of movie. And she said it's no different. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like this one a lot. Um, one of my lists that I'm sure has gotten plenty of attention. I, I was looking at this and I considered it for like five minutes. I'm like, do I bother talking about this? Do I not talk about this? Because the reality of it is that everybody knows Adam Sandler at this point. But I really, really like this movie way more than I probably should have. And so I just wanted to mention it, even if just in passing, because I thought Hustle was far, far better. It, it far exceeded my expectations. Like, I am not a sports fan, though I do like some sports movies. Basketball is not a sport that I like. That said, Adam Sandler has been on a roll of making really great films and this is another one. Like, I thought this was actually really great. He plays a, um, a NBA scout uh, who is kind of like, it, it's you get an inside look at how the business operates. And he literally is out watching kids play, looking for that next big star. 
and that's not necessarily always the person that you think it might be. And he finds this guy while out well in Spain scouting. He finds this basketball player playing like street ball on some corner and decides to bring him to America, which turns out to be a and this is basically what the whole movie is about, right? Like he finds this guy in Spain, brings him to America to maybe be drafted, and then it's all the drama of what happens after that. And it's really solid. I actually didn't know that uh, Juan Gaier, who plays the basketball player, is an actual basketball player. This is how little I know about basketball. <laughs> he's uh, he plays for the Toronto Raptors, but he's really compelling. He's he has really great screen presence. Um, and okay, he so he's not an actor, but he's still like he's really magnetic. Like he's really fun to watch. But it's the Adam Sandler show, and he's really really great. I really like this movie. It's streaming on Netflix. It came out sort of like, I don't know if it was under the radar, but it kind of came out mid-year. People kind of talked about it for five minutes and then it disappeared into the depths of, you know, the Netflix algorithm. But I really recommend seeking it out. If you're into sports movies at all, um, it's definitely one to check out. And even if you're not, it's just a really great drama. And, you know, they get a little bit into the family struggles of this basically, you know, Sandler is this guy who has never, who hasn't spent any time at home. Like he's been traveling for 20 years of his career. So he hasn't seen his kids grow up, grow up. He hasn't been with his wife for any long period of time. And you kind of get an inside look at that as well. It's really great. I really, really recommend this movie. I thought it was very, very good. I've had so many people tell me this movie is good and I haven't watched it yet. And the big reason is because I genuinely dislike sports movies. I really do. It's not my thing. But every once in a while, there is one that, you know, just like transcends and punches through. Like, I like any given Sunday. I dug draft day. So I'm not immune to the occasional good sports movie. So I'm going to probably have to break down and give this one a shot. But I do have like sort of like natural repellers like, oh, maybe about basketball next. I have a hundred other things to watch. This one will go to the bottom of the list if anything. So, but I've heard so much praise about it that I think I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to pull the trigger on this one. Yeah, and that's why I mentioned it because, like, it, that, like I say, sports movies are kind of like this thing that are in the ether. But this one is one that I thought was actually like pretty good and transcends that. So, recommended by me. What else do you have on your list? Uh, the next movie I've got on my list is the uh, movie "See How They Run" with uh, Tom George, which is a um, we're seeing the resurgence of the murder mystery party uh, movie, which I absolutely adore. Um, of course, brought back into popularity by Knives Out. And so everyone's ready to hop back on the murder mystery uh, train. And this is a movie that is basically a murder mystery that occurs at an Agatha Christie play. And then Detective, um, you've got the 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 haggard, tired detective Sam Rockwell, who's in with the young, fresh, bushy-tailed recruit Cherche uh, Ronan uh, to try to solve the case. And this movie, if you could sum up in one word, would be delightful. It's a sort of movie that I had a smile on my face from the beginning to the end, and it wasn't any particular one thing that occurred in the movie or one particular moment. It was just like everything about it was just delightful, and I enjoyed the entire trip. I had such a fun time with this movie. 
Okay, you said Saoirse Ronan, and I'm like, okay, that's going on the watch list. Yeah, like, right and now. and she is definitely the standout in the movie. She is she's MVP of this film, and she's doing some real heavy lifting, and she is absolutely wonderful. It's I I think it's some of the best work I've seen her do. Oh, that's so awesome! I haven't seen anything of hers, and I want to say a couple of years, so that is definitely going high on my watch list. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love it. Um, the next movie I want to talk about, which probably also doesn't need a lot of help because. It did finally, it did actually get an Oscar nomination. I think people are finally on the bandwagon, but please. Marcel the Shell with Shoes On must be the, like, the most charming, charmingest, that's not even a word, but it's the most charming of charming movies of all time. Like, there's just something about this tiny little shell, which is just so bloody adorable, and it's just the cutest thing ever. Like, I don't, like, how 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 the shell is just it's just the cutest thing. i just don't even know what to say it's just the most charming movie about this little shell and his grandmother and it's so ridiculous but i mean it's an animated movie so the, 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 for those that don't know it's about a shell and his grandmother they're the last and they're they're, they're pet lint yeah they have pet lint and um it's uh They've lost their entire family and they're by themselves. And then this guy finds them in in the house and he takes this cute little video and it goes viral on YouTube, Instagram. I have no idea. I don't remember. And then, you know, everybody's like, oh, this little shell becomes like a superstar. And they all want to help him find his family. And it's just the most charming thing ever. Like, there's just not a, like, an ill bone in this movie at all. Like, it's just the happiest little piece of entertainment you'll see all year and it legitimately made me cry it was just so damn charming i love this movie i love this movie i heard that from so many people and i haven't watched it yet and every time i look at it i'm just like it's a kid's movie about a shell i'm not watching this but it's not but but but, i mean and the other thing is he's got the most amazing little oh it's just you have to see it it's just the most charming thing ever like you know, if you need a pick-me-up, this is the movie to pick you up. There's just such, like, happiness in it. Like, there's very few movies that are made that kind of have this much joy in them. Mm-hmm. It's just the most charming thing. And it's so well made. And I actually didn't realize that uh, Dean Fletcher Camp had actually directed Lilo and Stitch uh, at Disney, which is a movie that has a lot of love. Like, there's quite a big following for that film. It's not one that I'm like a huge fan of, so I didn't put two and two together. Uh, but it makes a lot of sense now. And this is, I guess, like a um, an expansion of a story idea that he had a number of years ago because he's made, I think, two or three shorts with Marcel. Yeah, I remember seeing shorts. And, you know, I, I got to be honest, I was not enamored with those either. They did not win me over. It just felt like, oh, this is internet weird. That's what it always felt like to me. And it is a little, of, there is a little of that, but it's just so sweet and charming. I highly recommend it. I think it's just the, the, the nicest thing I've seen all year. That's what I'll call it. The nicest. Okay, thing. I'll put it on my watch list. What else do you got for me? Uh, what else I've got for you? Speaking of feel good movies. Ooh. I have weird, the weird Al Yankovic story. Um, this was, what was it, the, the Roku movie? Roku's deciding they're going to make movies now. Um, and it is the 
I guess, official biography of Weird Al Yankovic, because Weird Al's involved in this. He's one of the producers on the movie and even appears in the movie. Um, and stars uh, Daniel Radcliffe as Weird Al. Um, and the thing that makes it special is it's like, I didn't know exactly what I was in for when I started this thing, but I I was a huge Weird Al fan when I was a kid. I loved Weird Al. And so it's like, I, I'm definitely enamored to see whatever this is. And I kind of know the dude's story more or less, you know, at this point, just stuff I've consumed over the years. Um, this is the the most Weird Al version of a Weird Al biography that you could possibly get because it is absolutely a it is telling the Weird Al story up to a point, but it is more than more than anything, it is a parody of biography films in the fact that it tr- goes out of its way to create the most obviously fake legend of how Weird Al rose to power to the point where it's just like completely bald-faced inventing lies and history that you know didn't happen. Uh, the version of this film tells a story where all of his parody songs aren't parody songs, they're original songs that he wrote and suggests that Michael Jackson was copying Weird Al. Uh, that's the tack that the movie takes, and it plays it like Weird Al became the biggest pop star in the 80s um, above every other single pop star that existed to the point where Madonna is coming begging for him to work with her. So this movie was a lot of fun. I killed myself laughing at it. It may even be better than Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, in terms of, like, how hard it goes at trying to dismantle and parody the the archetype of the music biography film. But it definitely stands side by side with that film. Like, between those two movies, we don't need another music biography ever again, because the, these two movies have just destroyed the illusion of them. But I thought this movie was just an absolute blast, and I had no idea what to expect, and it just it wowed me on all fronts. Yeah, I have to agree. I I, I was expecting more of a traditional um, a biopic. So when I mean, and it's clear right from the get go that that's not what you're going to get. So then at that point, it's like all the rules are out the window, and you're just kind mm-hmm. of going with it. And Daniel Radcliffe is so good at this. So good in this, and he plays it so straight too. Because like you know, you've you've seen Weird Al, you've seen him like in interviews. He's just a he's a generally wacky dude, and then you got Daniel Radcliffe playing it like it is the most serious. I'm going for the Oscar performance, dramatic role, and he's not playing into the goofiness at all. And that's kind of what makes it funny. It's just how straight he plays it. Yeah, no, for sure. It's like the seriousness paired against or with the the wackiness that really like takes you. It just takes you. It like it knocks you on your ass. You're like, what the hell am I watching? You kind of just have to go with it. And and there, like the weird part is like if you if you know the story, there is a certain amount of truth within all of these lies, but it is mostly lies. And trying to like pick out what's true and what isn't true, it's almost a fool's errand with this film. Oh, totally. Totally, because at some point that was I turned to Adam like, 
did that actually happen that way? <laughs> like, who actually knows? I Nobody knows. And okay, this wasn't planned, but ne- my next movie is actually a music doc. <laughs> okay. <laughs> not so much a biopic, though. So it's Nothing Compares, um, which is uh, Catherine Ferguson's documentary about Sinead O'Connor. Okay. Yeah, so this was very under the radar. I was I meant to look to see where it was playing. I think it might be an HBO doc, but I can't remember for sure. I'll try to link to it um, in the show notes. But when I saw that they'd made a documentary about Sinead O'Connor, I was all over this because what on earth that even happened to Sinead O'Connor after the whole debacle of ripping up the Pope's picture? And it's, you know, I mean, you kind of remember what happened, but you know, at some point at this point, we're so far removed. It's like 20 years since it happened. It's, it's easy to kind of forget that she even was ever a thing until you hear the song and you're like, whatever happened to Sinead O'Connor? And that's really sad. And I think at one point, somebody in the documentary says, like, who's ever going to apologize to Sinead O'Connor for what, they did, for what the public did to her? Because the reality of it is the media killed her for, you know, really no reason. Like, there was no reason for her to be, to take on the amount of flack that she did. The reality of it is that she kept performing. She's been performing this entire time. She's put out albums. She's been touring. Just people don't really talk about her anymore. Like, this is the career massacre that they did on her career. And it's just, it's a really fascinating story. So it's part biopic and part sort of like exploration of the media landscape of the 90s. And the 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 issues that led to her ripping up the Pope's picture uh, on Saturday Night Live and the fallout of that. Um, It's a really, really great music doc. It's the kind of doc that I really like because it it does mix sort of the the individual story with like the larger pop culture um, connotations. And I think it works really, really well. And I highly recommend searching it out, especially if you're in any way, shape or form interested in Sinead O'Connor. It's it's a really great doc. I, I was I really really love this. I have definitely added this to my watch list. I did not know this doc even existed. Uh, it is a topic that I am interested in because I was fairly young at the time, but I remember seeing I watched live the Saturday Night Live episode where she tore up the Pope, Pope's picture, and seeing like the kind of media aftermath where like people wouldn't stop pearl clutching about it. And even at the time, I was like, you know, granted kind of young so I didn't really understand why this was like such a significant thing but it never really sat right with me the kind of skewering that happened of Sinead O'Connor as a result but especially in hindsight as I got older and looked back on that I was like no I agree with Sinead O'Connor and not only that she should not have been skewered she should have been venerated for that you know it's kind of ridiculous the the hatchet job that we allowed to have happen to her in the media just because she dared to go against the Catholic church. What a benign thing to lose your, your career to, but that was still in an age when the Catholic church held a lot of power and could actually result in you essentially losing your career it's kind of ridiculous. And it's one of those stories that's like, you know, kind of similarly the, uh, the Monica Lewinsky story where it's like, here's what happened in the media that you sort of like, okay, the, the narrative is so 
multiplicitous and singular that you see in the media about this issue, this is what the case must be. And then in hindsight, you go back and look and go, no, she didn't. She did not deserve to become the scapegoat for this problem. She was not the one abusing power. She is not the aggressor in this situation. Yet she's the one that the media decided needed to be destroyed here. And I always find it interesting when you can sort of like look back at this moment in history and go, "Wow, we couldn't have been more wrong as a culture." Uh, totally. That is exactly the sentiment. And I mean, uh, Ferguson does talk with Sinead O'Connor. There's some really um, interesting and fascinating uh, interviews. Like, uh, clearly, it's like a long form interview that they've cut up into and like sort of um, fed into areas of the documentary. But I mean, it's li- it's literally the first time I've seen her talk in 20 years. It- it's just it's so, so good. I cannot recommend it enough. So it's called Nothing Compares. I'm definitely going to hunt this one down because I want to see it. My next one um, is a very uh, hard watch called Piggy, which is a horror movie from Spain um, directed by uh, Carlotta Pereira, who I guess this was adapted from a short film, um, but it's a, it's a story about a, um, overweight young woman who works at her family's butcher shop um, and is basically taunted and teased by all the local girls in town. And there's one day where she goes to like the local out of the way swimming hole to go swimming, which she enjoys. And the local girls start teasing her and steal her clothes and, you know, generally be bullies. And at the same time, there is a dude who I guess is about to start his serial killing spree uh, who witnesses this all and I guess takes pity on Piggy and decides to start going after the girls that are bullying her. And you end up with this great moment early in the film where she's all alone on this uh, on this little side road trying to recover her, her clothes. And she comes across this van and one of the girls is like locked in the back of the van and begging to be like to be helped. And then the guy like comes out of the trees and they just sort of look at each other and she's just like lets them go off and take this girl away because like fuck her. But also now she's kind of complicit in a way in these serial killing crimes and is trying to like avoid kind of attention being brought down on her as a as any kind of suspect and finds herself sort of like lying to the police and you know dealing with her overbearing family and it's like sort of compounds in a mystery thriller kind of you know uh kind of way that you would get with like a lot of classic paranoid thrillers and it's it's just a really good movie, but it's also really kind of intense and uncomfortable watch. So, but I think it I think it's definitely one to see. I've seen the still of her, like not covered in blood, but splattered in blood, holding something. I can't remember if it was a machete or a knife. I don't recall. But I saw that image a number of times and I keep thinking, okay, I need to watch this movie. And then it immediately leaves my mind. So I'm, I've added it to my watch list. It's going to happen. going to happen. It sounds too good not to happen. Yeah, it's a good movie. 
Um, and the last one I wanted to mention, another one that probably does not need a lot of help, but man, this movie could have easily made my top 10. Just something about it. And I think it's Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> I can't get over. But bones and all. So this is uh, Luca Guadagnino's new film. It's basically a, a romance with cannibals. That's kind of, that's essentially what it is. I just, I love this movie. I really do. It, it doesn't fully, fully work. But, um, and I think that what doesn't really work for me is Timothy Chalamet. I mean, he's very charming, but I don't know. He just does not have the magnetism that Taylor Russell does. She is like on another level in this movie. She's just so, so good. And the scene with her mom is like ingrained in my mind. It's like the creepiest thing I could possibly imagine. And also so sad, like really emotionally, emotionally resonant. Yeah, this movie. I really like it. I have issues, but I really, really like it. I did not love this movie. Um, I didn't dislike it. Uh, there were parts of it that I really enjoyed. I think this moment has some incredible moments of punctuation, of really disturbing, poignant, and melancholy moments that feel like so visceral and, and you know, burn into your brain. Uh, the problem is those points of punctuation are spread out amongst some incredible slog uh the movie is, I thought, was way too overlong. It seems to count on you really buying into the romance between these two characters, and I never at any point bought into it. And without that, I didn't have a lot to carry me along. Uh, I agree with you that she is absolutely freaking amazing in this movie. I think the reason Timothy Chalamet doesn't white work as well is not because I don't think he's not doing a great job. I think he is, but I think it's just so hard to buy him as white trash. That um, too. Yeah. Yeah. It's he's, he's far too pretty to be, to be in this particular movie. Um, I like the concept of the movie, but I just did not like the whole movie. And I think part of the thing that ruined it for me a little bit, too, is the movie I watched immediately before this film. And this is just coincidence. I did not program this in any way. It was just like, oh, what's next on my playlist of stuff I need to watch? Oh, it's Bones and All. And the movie I watched right before this, before jumping to Bones and All, was the movie Raw, the other cannibal movie. But so much, like, but Raw is like on like another level yeah and and compare and so it was really hard to watch bones and all and not be comparing it to the other cannibal movie i had just watched and i liked raw so much more and so and so it i probably a little bit unfair towards bones and all because i was coming off this high from raw and it's just like seeing what felt like a not quite as good cannibal movie I don't know. Maybe I'll revisit this one in a couple of years and see if my opinion has changed. Was that the first time you'd seen Raw? It's the first time I'd seen it. It's been one of those ones that had just been sitting on my watch list forever, and I finally got around to it. Oh, we're going to have to dig into that. The ending of that movie is like an ass kick. A lot of time movie is an ass whooping, but that oh, yeah. scene is 
such an ass kick. It's like, holy fuck, what just happened? I know. Between that and between that and Titan, the uh, that director is like doing some really fucked up shit. Titan, I, I mean, I think we may have talked about Titan way back when it came out. We probably I, did. Yeah, I think I liked it, but Raw is like love. Like, yeah, I like I like Raw. I like Raw more. I think Raw is a better film, but definitely audacious filmmaking. Oh, for, definitely for sure. Okay, so uh, hit me with the next one. Okay, the next one I've got on my list is the uh, movie Hellraiser, the new Hellraiser from director David Bruckner. Um, which uh, I'm trying to remember what this came out on. Was it HBO Max? Um, it might have been, yeah. Yeah, it got it got released direct to streaming. I don't even think it had a theatrical run, which is kind of disappointing. But I've been looking forward to this movie um, for quite a while because uh, David Bruckner's film that he did before this was uh, The Night House with Rebecca Hall, and it was also the same writers on The Night House that uh, were doing the Hellraiser um, reboot sequel. Who knows? The, there, there's no canon with the Hellraiser movies. As soon as you get past the, the second movie, canon goes out the frickin' window. Um, as because the Hellraiser franchise is so fractured and broken as a whole. It's because a majority of the sequels that got made, especially the ones that got made by Dimension, did not start out as Hellraiser movies. They started out as completely separate, independent screenplays that the wine scene said, well, you can make this, but what if it were a Hellraiser movie? And so all of a sudden, the filmmakers are like forcing Pinhead into it to make it a Hellraiser movie, and so you end up with like this these really weird, disjointed sequels that they just kept making to hold on to the franchise rights. Um, those are now gone, and they are free, and they are back in the hands of Clive Barker. And so as a result, we get this version of Hellraiser, which quite honestly, as a huge Hellraiser fan, this is the best Hellraiser movie since the first movie. Not only is doing, it understands what makes Hellraiser good, um, and it's doing Hellraiser good, but it's also adding to the mythos of, of Hellraiser in a way that not only feels organic, but feels like it was always there as part of the plan in the very beginning. Uh, good performances, great, gory, practical makeup effects. You've got the the biggest kind of departure is that we've got Jamie Clayton uh, playing Pinhead. So we've done a gender swap Pinhead, um, change out like new Cenobites, which honestly works fine. There's no reason why, you know, there's you're going to have the same Cenobites all the time. It's been quite a few years. I thought she was great in the role. Um it's just a great movie. If you love Hellraiser and you know, you're just like, Oh, Hellraiser's a dead franchise at this point. I understand why you would say that this is a good reason to revisit Hellraiser. Cause I think you're going to love it. I fully 110% agree. I thought that like at some point and you're totally right. I think after movie two, that franchise just kind of went to the wind. It was like, Every time it was a diminishing returns, like, oh, a Hellraiser movie. Oh, wait, not really a Hellraiser movie. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it was nice to finally get something that really did feel like Hellraiser. And you could see that the love that the crew have for the material. And it really comes through, like, they've captured all the moments of what make Hellraiser Hellraiser. I was so happy to watch this movie. It was so good. So well done. And I have to throw hands up to Ben Lovett who has like 
he's one of my favorite um, composers. And there's he has a bunch of behind the scenes making of the music of the film, which is so good. <laughs> it's almost as good as watching the movie itself. I'm such a fan girl. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it, they're on his Instagram account, so they're easy to just search online. And he has like three or four like little vignettes on uh, trying to cap like create the sounds of hell. Um, and it's really, really interesting. And when I rewatch, I did watch this movie twice. And after I'd rewatched it, after having seen those, it, like it's hard not to pick up on those extra, like the auditory, the auditory portion of the movie becomes like so much bigger than you remember it the first time around. You're like, okay, so yeah, this works as a full package. It's so good. I'm so glad you put this on your list because I don't think enough people have seen this movie. And I really, really hope that they make more. With this kind of sentiment, like it, it, you can tell when the filmmakers and the creators really understand what they're working with. So I'm, I was really happy to see this be so successful. I really hope that they make another one because I, I oh absolutely, I want more. I'm with you. I'm with you. And then shifting gears completely to something completely different, though perhaps equally depressing. Um, Lucas Dance Close. So um, this, I think, was nominated for either a Best Picture Oscar or a Best Foreign Language Film Oscar or maybe both. I don't remember at this point. This movie is so fucking sad. Like, I just cannot. Like, the tra- somebody said to me the other day, oh, um, this trailer completely missold this movie. Because I said to him, when you sit down to watch this, be prepared because it is going to break you. This movie is so sad. And then I got a text like two hours later going, yeah, thanks for the warning. I'm like, "Hmm?" the trailer really does not set this up. So the basic premise is it's the story of these two little boys. And I mean little, like maybe 10, maybe 11 at most, um, who are best friends. And one of them kind of is starting to develop like other feelings for his best friend. And then something tragic happens. And it's the aftermath of how this little boy deals with the tragedy. And it is the, the, the saddest fucking thing ever. It's so beautiful. But it's like this amazing film about um, loss and mourning and sexuality and family dynamics and friendship. It just, it's working on so many levels, but it's just such like a... It's handled with such care. It's just, it slowly kills you. It just slowly breaks your heart. It's, it's, it's the most depressing movie I saw all year. <laughs> just, I, I have not seen this one yet, but it is on my watch list. Yeah. So, it's, it's, unfortunately, I can't add more than that. Yeah. No, it, it's very good. I highly, highly, highly recommend it. But I do warn people, prepare yourself. It's very, very sad. But very fulfilling at the end of it. Like you, you walk away from it feeling like almost like it was a necessary watch. Like it just, it's also very cleansing. I don't know how else to explain it. it it's very good. I, I really, really love this movie. So I highly recommend it to anybody that is, even if you're even considering watching it, just watch it. It's very good. Just be forward. Okay, what's next on your list? Next on my list is Confess Fletch. I fucking hated this movie. I'm sorry. Really? I disliked this movie so much. Oh, man. Then this is going to be interesting. Okay, Kid Flash Fletch is the third um, attempt at adapting 
the the fledged novels, or I guess the second, since um, the the second fledged movie, Chevy Chase, was not actually based on any of the novels. It was just an original story. But I I'm a big fan of the fledged novels. I've read them all, and I really enjoy them. They have a very soft spot in my heart. So the idea that we were going to get another attempt at Fletch and instead of making it like a comedic vehicle for Chevy Chase to do slapstick and pratfalls, we were going to go back to the novels and try to like do a genuine Fletch movie. And we're going to cast John Hamm as Fletch, who I think is perfect casting for the character of Fletch. I think he is such a great choice. So I don't know how much more I can say than that. It's exactly what I wanted. It's like a Fletch mystery novel. It was done really well. It's a fun movie. John Hamm giving a really fun performance as Fletch. I love the hell out of it. No, no. Now, tell me why you're wrong. Well, no. (laughs) So I guess this is why I'm wrong. Because I watched this not knowing anything about it. Like nothing. I didn't know it was based on a book until right the second. I didn't realize that there was a a prequel of sorts with Chevy Chase. Never seen it. You've never seen the Chevy Chase Fletch movies? No. Oh, wow. No. Like the 80s were very much a black hole for me. (laughs) I mean, I spoke basically like no English. I didn't move out here till like 89. So I didn't watch a lot of, I didn't consume a lot of that media so there are like, unless it was like a major part of the cultural conversation, I didn't catch up with them unless, you know, something Dan might recommend. And like Fletch was just never clearly something that I ever needed to, needed, felt I needed to watch. So I clearly had no idea what I was getting myself into with this movie. I will say, I mean, I did like John Hamm. I just didn't care for the movie. Like mysteries are not really my thing. Clearly, I, I think that's the big problem. Is like you're not a mystery person. Yeah, clearly. I mean, I don't. I'm not. I don't read a lot of mysteries. I don't watch a lot of mysteries. This it just didn't work for me. I just thought it was kind of like, I just I was just bored. I was really really bored. Really really. I really disliked this movie. I, I for me, I felt like it was a waste of my time because I got zero out of it. I just didn't. It didn't entertain me. So I was like, oh, why am I even watching this? Now, I will admit that I was entering into it with a kind of absurd amount of already pre-built glee for the fact that I was getting another Fletch movie and my knowledge of Fletch as a character from the books and, you know, having read the book quite a while ago, I've read it, but I don't know. I thought it was delightful and I really enjoyed it. But now I think clearly this this was clearly not meant for me. And now that I know a little bit more about it, I'm like, okay, well, I don't have to like all the movies. Yeah. I, I honestly had zero idea that this had any baggage to go with. I will say you were the first person I've run into have had this kind of visceral response to Confess Fletch. Well, and the other thing is like this movie got, um, I'm trying to remember who put this out, but it, it, it I don't want to say it got dumped but the release strategy was so weird where they put it out on streaming and then in like 400 theaters or something like that on the same weekend and did no advertising behind it so it ended up making only like two million dollars at the box office like if you just look at the box office it was a big bomb but the people who were watching it were saying this is fucking amazing give us another movie 
we want another Fletch movie. And I don't know if it will ever happen because I'm not sure. Like, it depends how much they're reading into the streaming numbers on it. But it, the numbers might not be financially there for them to, to suggest pushing it forward another movie. Yeah, yeah. Clearly Paramount's about confused about what they're going to do with their movies. Yeah. <laughs> Unless it's Mission Impossible or Tom, Tom Cruise doing something. We don't know what the hell is happening over there. I mean, that one they got... With it, I mean, they probably would have shoved that one streaming if they could have, you know, Top Gun Maverick. And, and you know, thank God they didn't because that movie made all the money. Um, I'm out of movies. What else do you got? Okay. Uh, continuing on with movies. I'm almost done. I got, like, two more movies here. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, one of the other movies I've got is 3,000 Years of Longing. Uh, George Miller's um, uh, Arabian Nights movie more or less. Uh, Tilda Swinton unwakens or releases a genie from a bottle in the form of Idris Elba. And he basically tells the story of how he got there. Um, and so it ends up being like the wraparound for his misadventures in being a genie going from, you know, one indentured servitude to another and, and you know, how he, he essentially keeps getting trapped or or lost and locked away due to his inability to not like love fully and not give of himself so much because he just has so much love to give and it always gets him into trouble um i thought this movie was absolutely luscious and fun and decadent and I thought it was a great ride, and I love that we get to see Tilda Swinton as an older woman who has sexual desires of her own, which is not something we get to see in a lot of movies. It's like, if you're a woman in the movies, once you reach 25, you stop having sexual desires, apparently. Um, but that's not the case in this film, and I really appreciate it. It's uneven in certain places um, and doesn't entirely work, but I still really enjoyed large parts of it. And I enjoyed this way. Yeah, I'm with you. I really, really like this as well. And my issues are the same. There's just sections of it that I didn't feel really went anywhere, but overall I thought it actually was really fun to watch. And I really love the ending, even though I don't really understand it. I love the ending. I really, I really, really do. And so the other movie I've got on my list is uh, Fall from director Scott Mann, which is very simple premise. Um, it's two girls who are climbers decide to go up on this really tall radio tower. And once they get to the top, the rickety stairs fall apart and they're trapped up there. Um, it's one of those types of movies, two people trapped in a location. Now they have to try to like use what's at their disposal to try to, you know, save themselves. Um, and they're like up so high that they can't even get cell service on their phones. So they like try to like tie a rope to the cell phone and lower it enough so that they can, they can get cell service with it and get a message out to people to let them know that they need help sort of thing. And it's just a really good one of those. And it's also shot in such an incredible way that, you genuinely feel um, the weight of how high up they are at any given point in time. 
and you know the uh, the quote unquote forgive me for this gravity of it um, and considering that I almost guarantee like this thing was shot entirely against a green screen I thought it was really impressive that at no time did I ever feel like they weren't on top of this tower and at this ridiculously long height. And the movie ends up uh, even playing out in a way that I wasn't quite expecting. It has some twists in store that, that kind of caught me off guard. So I really enjoyed it. If you're looking for one of those types of movies, Fall is a really good version of it. It's funny because I legitimately added this to my Netflix watch list the other day because it landed on Netflix a couple of weeks back and it was like in the top 10 of the week. And I'm like, what is this? So I'm very, very excited to catch up with this. I have a couple of movies. I'm gonna... Yeah, it's a, it's a fun, quick ride. I love it. All right. So let's talk some TV. I have a bunch of TV and I think I think I, ha- I think I have more TV than you do. So maybe I'll... I'll get us started on some TV talk. And I I will preface my list by saying that I don't think any of these need any more help, but I really liked all of them. And I kind of felt like I needed to mention them all. So I wanted to start with Blackbird on Apple TV+. So this is a limited series with uh, Taryn Edgerton and Paul Walker Hauser. Based on a novel, well, a a biography by um, James Keene. Um, so, um, Edgerton plays this, um, like this low level kind of mobster guy that's basically selling drugs and get himself, gets himself caught and thrown into prison and everybody, he's known as this guy that's really, really likable. So the, I think it's the FBI or somebody decides that they're going to offer him a deal where they'll put him into a maximum security prison to try to, uh, make friends with, uh, Paul Walker Hauser's character, who is this like ice cold serial killer who they think has killed a bunch of women and they want to know how many and where they're buried. And they figure that Keen can get a confession out of this guy. And so you have this, this basically this young guy, this kid that has this amazing charisma who is like a blue collar criminal. Like he's done very little in a maximum security prison with all of these crazy people (laughs) trying to make friends with the craziest and creepiest of them all. The performances in this show are so, so good. And Hauser is just like, I think he's just naturally creepy. Like he, you look at him and he doesn't look like a creepy guy, but he just inhabits the roles. It's so good. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. I think it's like eight episodes the whole thing is streaming now. It was released very early in the year last year. This is one of those ones that's on my list I've got sitting there, and I know I'm going to get to it at some point, but it's just like too many things. There's too many things to watch, and I just I, I haven't gotten to Blackbird yet. What do you have next? What I have next is The Bear, uh, which is the, the Hulu series about a... Um, a chef who worked in high-end restaurants who basically burns out and takes over his dead brother's uh, like Chicago deli-type restaurant uh, and is intent on turning the restaurant around and his method for doing so is insisting on 
making it run like a high-end kitchen um, that you would find in Manhattan or something similar. And it's very much like fish out of water. He's working with people who are like, if it's not broken, why are you trying to fix it? You're making me do stuff that I don't want to do. But what he ultimately ends up doing is slowly earning the respect of the rest of the kitchen crew and also enabling them to find joy in perfecting their craft and become masters at being at preparing food and and taking taking pleasure and pride in what they're doing rather than just trying to shovel out as much food as quickly as possible um and he runs up against every problem that you're going to run into operating a low rent family run restaurant that is in over its head and should really just be boarded up and shut down um and it's just like it's a fascinating drama it's really kinetic it is it is will give you anxiety if you've ever worked in a kitchen before and by the end of it you will just you'll start to cook dinner yourself and be saying yes chef um because it is so infectious it's like i absolutely love this show it was one of the best new shows i saw last year I'm totally with you. I think for me, I, I almost wish that because we caught up with this, like everybody was talking about it, but they'd already released, I think, like three or four episodes. So we had four, three or four to watch like back to back. And that's for me, that was the preferred way to watch this show. There's just something about like how fast it moves, like the 30 minutes or 28 or sometimes 35 does not feel like enough time. Like it's the perfect amount of time. Because I think anything longer than that would probably give me a heart attack. Because the entire time you're like, you, you just you feel like you're in there with them. It's so stressful to watch. That is the other thing is that they're not hour long episodes, so it makes it very digestible. Very, very digestible. Very digestible. So yeah, I I'm with you. Totally love the show. But then I I like food shows. So. And it was such a left field show. Either I didn't know anything about it until people were talking about it. And even then, if I had known about it, I'd be like, oh, well, that doesn't interest me. Yeah, that was so good. Yeah, so good. Excellent, excellent selection. I have two. And I put these together, even though they're a little bit different, but they're both on Disney and they're both from franchises that I have like very mixed feelings with. And in some cases, total indifference. So for me, the fact that I liked both of these shows as much as I did, I think says a lot about how good they are. The first is Andor um, with Diego Luna, which is fits somewhere in the Star Wars universe. Like dance tried to explain it to me. It, it's it's a follow-up to Rogue One, or I guess prequel to Rogue One. Yeah, I vaguely know. All I know is it's the other Tony Gilroy property <laughs> in the Star Wars universe, which is probably why I like it so much. I think the reason I really, really like this show is because it doesn't feel like it's necessarily a Star Wars series. Like It, it feels like a, a political thriller that just happens to be set in the Galactic Empire, and once in a while you get lasers and you know, characters that you might recognize or it might fit into some thing that you might recognize from one of the other franchises. But 
I just, I love this show. I think it's so, so good. I cannot wait for season two. I need to know how the story ends. I know how the story ultimately ends, but I need to know how it gets there. And then the other one is Moon Knight, which feels like it's the craziest of the Marvel shows that I've seen. And I just love it. It's just so batshit crazy. And it's all because of Oscar Isaac. And, and I mean, Ethan Hawke. I, I, I crush on this show. I mean, I'm, I've, I've said before, I'm still on board the Marvel train. I'm, I'm still doing like all of those shows and watching them, you know, kind of religiously and enjoying all of them more or less. Andor is still a bit of a blind spot for me. I basically made the decision I'm done with Star Wars. I was never a huge Star Wars fan to begin with, and it's just gotten so much, and it feels like diminishing returns. I'm like, it, it was starting to feel like an obligation I wasn't looking forward to. It's like Mandalorian was fine. It's okay. Everyone seems to love it. I love it a little less. Um, and so I didn't I didn't watch Boba Fett. I didn't watch um, Obi-Wan. I just like completely skipped out. Uh, but then I keep hearing how great Andor is and how unlike all the other Star Wars show Andor is and how it is like on a whole other level. I'm like, okay, I'm going to put that one on the list. I will watch Andor. So I've like, I've got that one kind of in the queue and I am going to get to it at some point. And I'm not expecting it's going to turn me around on Star Wars or change my mind, but it might be a show that on its own, I'm like, okay, this is really good. Yeah. And honestly, that's how I feel about it. It hasn't changed my mind on how kind of played out. I think Star Wars is, but as a standalone property, I think Andor is fantastic. Like the storytelling is so good. And just the, it, it, it just feels like a, like a political thriller. Like it really does. It, it's so good. And at one point, it almost feels like uh, like an escape movie. Because <laughs> for, I think like three or four episodes, they're trying to escape from like a maximum security prison. And the whole like, how do you do this? is so good. It, 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 it just feels like it's totally removed from the rest of the Star Wars stuff. But admittedly, that said, I did think for me, this was probably the most interesting, like on a, I don't know how to explain it. I really liked the sort of political intrigue that plays into this and how it's a lot of women that are sort of behind the scenes moving chess pieces. Um, and it was really interesting to kind to see like the whole political side of how a revolution happens, mm. which is not something that is ever really like dealt with in Star Wars. Like the revolt just happens and there's people that are leading the, the charge, but you don't really know who other than like Princess Leia and whoever else her sort of band of cronies are. But this, you really start, you get to see kind of like the inner workings of what's happening, like on a political level. It just, it feels like this uh, spy show that is just happens to be set in space. So the real question is, the real question is, where should I put this in my queue? Above or below Blackbird? Above. Okay. That's the, I would, I would go above. I'd watch this before Blackbird for sure. All right, there we go. All right. Um, what do you have? What's the other show that I've got that I thought was like the huge standout, and massive surprise uh, last year was uh, the first season of Severance, um, which came from director Ben Stiller, of all people. 
and stars Adam Scott. And the premise is just so delightfully perfect that I can't believe no one's ever done it before, where it's basically, here's this corporation that has decided that it's, uh, it's, it's, adherence to corporate secrecy is so stringent that they have enacted a policy where if you want to go work there, they're going to implant a chip in your head so that when you hop on the elevator to go to work, all of a sudden your outside brain switches off and this whole other you that just lives in the office wakes up. And then when you leave work, office you goes to sleep and outside world you comes awake, which when you think about it for a moment, almost sounds like an incredible dream and like something you would sign up for. Hey, what if I could just like go to work and like switch off and then wake up and go, I'm going to go live my life and all that work stuff can just stay at work and I don't ever have to think about it. It's just there. You know, I don't have to endure it. Other me has to endure it. But what you end up with is like this whole other like fractured psyche that its entire life exists solely in the confines of this basement office in a corporate building, moving around things and not under even understanding what cog in the wheel this serves or if any. And you start to wonder, is like, is this just like a big social experiment where they're not actually doing any work? Or are they actually doing something that's important because you can't really quite tell? And you end up with this fractured personality where both halves are trying to figure out, like, what's going on in the other world? And, you know, there's something that's inherently broken in them now that there's this innate nature that they want to sort of rectify and, like, you know, get whole again. There's something missing from their life as a result from it. And it ends up being this incredible psychological thriller that also plays out as a, um, it's basically, I guess, like a soft sci-fi story as well. And I've never seen anything like this. And it's absolutely riveting. I've watched, I think, I want to say half of this season and I really have enjoyed what I've seen for whatever reason. I think it's because Dan is not into it, so we haven't finished it. So I think it's a show that I'm going to have to finish on my own. But for whatever reason, it just, like, I liked it a lot, but not enough to finish it the first time around. So, I mean, I remember large swaths of it, but I almost feel like I need to restart it from the beginning to really, like, let it sink in. I am going to finish it. I need to finish you got to get back on the severance train. Well, this is it. I think, you know, before season two returns, I, I really need to get caught up with this because I'm going to feel. Well, especially by that point, because the show was like such a kind of huge cultural phenomenon That's it. that when season two drops, it's all anyone's going to be talking about. This is it. I don't want to be left out. <laughs> um, <laughs> got to deal with the FOMO. I know. No FOMO for me. Um, another show that I wanted to mention is The Dropout, which we talked about, I think, I want to say at least twice, once when I watched it and once with you watched it, but I, it's worth mentioning. And again, uh, Amanda Seyfried is just so good in this show. <laughs> it, she really is. Yeah, it's fantastic. If you haven't seen it yet, it's on Disney+. Plus. It's on Hulu if you're in the States. 
So highly recommended it. You really can't go wrong with it. it it's such a great watch. I really like the dropout too. Um, I think if anything, the only thing I didn't like is I consumed so much diff- different stories about uh, this whole tale um, uh, about Elizabeth Holmes that at that point it's like, okay, I feel like I know all this material already. I'm just like retreading ground. It's like by the time I got to David Fincher's Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, it's like I've ingested this story three times by this point. It's like, I, I love what you're doing, but I feel like I've been here too many times. Uh, and that was, and that's not a fault of the show. Um, but the show is, I think, really excellently done. And yeah, I think Amanda Seyfried gives like the performance of her career in this in this show. Um, she gives a, a truly transformative performance, and I say that in the sense of the character genuinely transforms over the course of the series into a completely different person, and also she transforms as an actor into that real life person. I agree, one hundred and ten percent. I, I mean, she's gotten a lot of attention for the series, but I still get the sense that a lot of people haven't seen it. Yeah, and also feels like she's gotten snubbed a bit too. Yeah, so it's like she's part of the conversation, but kind of on the outside of it. So I really hope that people will give the series a shot, a shot because it is quite good. I think I'm going to get some hate for this one, but I know I can't help it. I really like this series a lot, and I can't like it's probably the the moment of the year where I kind of breathing the biggest sigh of relief was after I finished season one of Halo and everybody was bitching about how bad the show was, and, but they had already announced partway through season one that they were going to do a season two, which could still get canceled, but I really hope it doesn't because, you know, I think this show is a perfect example of, what happens when you try to monetize on a known name? Because, I mean, I think they could have called this something else and changed enough of the story so that it didn't really resemble a Halo video game. I mean, they could have called it something else and maybe taken some of the like big swath concepts and said, loosely based on Microsoft's Halo or whatever you want to say. But this show, it's so fucking good. I tell you, I love this show. I think Pablo Schreiber is great. I think the basic concept is great. I think the execution is really good. It's uber violent. It looks amazing. The alien designs are fantastic. The world building is great. There's a lot of like, what the fuck is happening moments, particularly towards the end of season one. Love it. I'm here for all of it. I have not watched this show yet, um, probably because of most of the most everyone says it's a bad show, um, so I haven't been running towards it. And especially since I'm not a really a Halo fan either, I think I played like one of the games, and I was like, eh, I'm very meh on Halo. It it does not hold an important cultural place in my heart at all. So it's um, there was nothing making me really rush out to see this show. You are, however, the only person I've heard praise the show. So, but I, I also kind of agree with you. Like in, like if it hadn't been called Halo, maybe people would have a different reaction to it. Because I think that is like the that's the catch twenty two of doing franchise, you know, filmmaking. It's like sure, if you call it Halo, you're gonna get this built in audience that's gonna show up for a Halo show. 
But if you're not giving them what they want from a Halo show, they will rip it to shreds. Um, my favorite thing to point out was there was a movie a couple of years ago that came out on Netflix called Night Teeth, which was this fun little like trashy vampire uh, movie. And I enjoyed it quite a bit. And halfway through, I was like, wait a minute, this is just Vampire the Masquerade with the serial numbers filed off. That's exactly what this is. And it seemed very obvious it was kind of cribbing from that and creating that world. And my first thought was like, well, why didn't they just like get the license and call it Vampire the Masquerade? They probably like get more people watching this movie as a result. And then I thought, no, because then all of those Vampire the Masquerade fans would be ripping apart all the ways in which it is not like the thing they expect it to be. And that they actually have great and incredible freedom in being able to just do the thing with the serial numbers filed off, but call it an original thing. Now no one's going to tag them for not being true to the source material. So I think it's, I think it's a catch-22 when it comes to this sort of thing. And given the fact that I don't have um, any great warm fuzzies for Halo as a, as a game franchise, who knows, maybe I'll have the same reaction and, and you know, I'll actually genuinely dig the show because I'll be coming to it with, like, a, a sort of fresh set of eyes that you don't get when you're just, like, you know, the complete opposite of how I'm going into The Last of Us because I'm intimately familiar with that game. I've played through it, like, five times. And so watching the show is almost a surreal experience because of, like, how closely some stuff mimics the story of the game. And I'm just like, I can't be objective because I'm too close to this material. And Halo would be the exact opposite. So who knows? I'll give it a shot. Maybe I'll actually dig it. Yeah, for sure. Like, I don't think the first episode is a good enough, um, is a really good um, like uh, marker of what the series turns into. I really think like it needs at least two episodes. And honestly, for me, I think it really picks up by like episode three or four, where you start to learn more about the characters themselves. But I, 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 I love it. And I mean, I have, I've never played the game. I know anything, nothing about the Halo universe other than what the show has given me. I was there just for Pablo. Pablo Schreiber was it. <laughs> totally worth it. All right, I'll give it an episode or two and see if it hooks me. Okay, and then the last show I wanted to mention is one that I don't think anybody was talking about at all last year. Um, it did; they did put out like an Emmy campaign for it, which is the only reason I found out about it. To be completely honest, I got a, a, a mailer with some pictures in it, and I was like, "What the fuck is the show, and where is it playing?" And it's Outer Range on Amazon Prime. Um, oh, I heard about this. Yeah, so this is. A sci-fi western uh, starring Josh Brolin, Lily Taylor, and Imogen Poots. And I'm pretty sure I talked about it once I've wa- I watched season one. Um, and the basic concept is that um, Josh Brolin and Lily Taylor have like a family. They own this ranch. There is this mysterious hole in some like outer pasture. Imogen Poots is like this woman that's like, uh, I think she's like a poet or a writer that comes like, you know, wandering in one day and she's like, can I set up my tent? Can I pitch my tent in like some corner of your, of your pasture or your land? Because I want to see some of the, the rock formations and stuff. I want to go exploring in the mountains and reluctantly they agree. And then shit just gets crazy. And then by the end of the season, you're like, holy shit, when is season two coming? We need to know what happened. (laughs) 
it turns out to be like this it plays like it plays it totally like a western until it doesn't and then you're like it's like time folding or time bending time trap i don't know don't know i just know i need to find out this is one of those shows that when i heard about like what it was i was simultaneously both intrigued but also like oh one of those um I don't know, maybe maybe that's unfair, but it's like, oh, cowboy on farm finds sci-fi hole in pasture. It's like, okay, I feel like I know what it is to a certain degree, and I'm not sure I'm all that kind of, like, I find that so alluring, but at the same time, it might be amazing. And I don't know if I want to invest time in it to find out sort of thing. So it's just, it's just kind of sat there for me. I haven't watched it yet. And I will say, like, I, I'm, I'm afraid to say any more for fear of, like, spoiling any of it. But that is both kind of the premise and totally not the premise. Like, what you think is going to happen is not necessarily how it plays out. Okay. And and the show plays its cards very close to the chest. You never really know like you think you know as much as the characters do and then it turns out like by episode I don't I can't remember how many episodes there are if there are 8 or 10, but like with one or two episodes left to go, they start revealing stuff and you're like, "Oh, so the character we actually know far less than the characters do." And it changes the way the sh- the rest of the show plays out. And it actually changes when you watch the show a second time. It changes the way season one plays out once you know what happens at the end of it. The one thing that does sell me on is I do love Imogen Poots. And she's fantastic in it. I've I've loved her ever since 28 weeks later. Yeah, and she plays such a bitch. Like, she is so likable at the beginning. You're like, oh, she's so lovely. And then she's no. Also feels like she's been 20 for like 10 years. Because she doesn't age. I know. She looks exactly the same. That's the thing. Oh, it's so good. I, I it's like when it. she showed up in the in the Black Christmas remake, I was like, wait a minute. Last time I saw you, you looked this age. What the hell is going on? And and that was it. That That's all I have. I, I'm, I'm feeling quite content. If anybody watches any of these shows, I would be very, very thrilled. Well, I've added some stuff to my list. I mean, the 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 first thing that I'm definitely going to watch is that uh, that Sinead O'Connor documentary. I want to see that. Yeah, it's, there's some good stuff there, and I, I I've certainly I've certainly populated with my list with more stuff that you know I should probably get to before the year kind of actually starts rolling out because I keep looking at the to come list and I'm like, holy shit, this year is going to be pretty crazy. <laughs> I mean, I almost feel like we could do a whole episode on the stuff that came out in 2022 that we just haven't gotten to yet. That's like on our watch list that we want to see that, but we haven't seen yet. But the problem is like, what would be the point of that episode? Be like, hey, here's this cool thing I want to see. I can't really say more about it because I haven't seen it. Yeah, pretty much, right? But I mean, I have been, I have been trying. So I mean, at some point, I was using the IMDb watch list fairly religiously. Because I was going in there and I would add stuff to my watch list. And every once in a while, I would look at that watch list and watch something from that watch list and then rate it. And then I would remove it and blah, blah, blah. At some point, that list became unwieldy. And I just like, they keep changing the way IMDb looks and it drives me insane. So I don't use it nearly as much as I used to. I, I use Letterboxd for that. 
And so this is exactly it. I now use Letterbox for all of this. So the, the the only drawback to that is Letterbox for the most part does not have TV shows. Yeah, they've slowly started to add stuff, but it's very hit and miss. Like, and it's random the shows that they add. It's very bizarre. But so yeah, I've 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 started to build a new <laughs> watch list <laughs> as of last year. It's kind of already very long. I try to keep mine reasonable because I know that people, I know some people who have like watch lists that are like 5,000 movies long. And I like to tease them about it. It's like, even if all you did was watch the movies on your watch list from here until you died, you would not get through your watch list. And like, they're fine with that. But like, I get that, like my OCD can't handle that. And so that's a little bit too much for me. I'm just going to check here. I've got, 829 films on my watch list currently so that feels reasonable yeah to me that i don't even have that many i think because i only started using it like more regularly last late last year well and and my watch list is not like uh oh here's all the movies coming out in 2023 i want to see like nothing on on my watch list hasn't been released already it's just software that i hear about like oh i want to see that and i add it exactly um i did we had to move a bookshelf the other day, so I, I had to clean my a portion of my DVD collection because I had to empty the shelves in order to move the shelf because it's so heavy. So as I was reorganizing, because you know how it is, right? Well, with me, I'm really bad at it because I'll organize the shelf and then I'll buy stuff and it doesn't like automatically fit in. And so I just kind of put it in that area and then eventually I'll get around to cleaning it. It doesn't usually take like five years, but I think this time it legitimately was five years since I've reorganized the shelf. So as I was cleaning up the shelf and, you know, moving stuff around, I think (laughs) there might be like at least from the shelves that I saw, there must be, there's at least 15 movies that I've bought that I haven't watched. They're just like sitting there. So that's my next goal. The, The goal this year is to get through those movies that are on my shelf that I haven't, I've bought and haven't watched yet. I've got a, I've got a couple of shelves in my Blu-ray shelving that just like, these are the movies to watch. I have not seen these ones yet. So it's, uh, they're constantly, they're staring me in the face and I slowly whittle away at it, but I seem to add movies quicker to it than I watch. This is it. This is it. I haven't, I, I've been a more, much more, uh, uh, selective of what I add to the list because I'm very quickly running out of space. So and now I'm to the point where I very, very rarely will buy something unseen. Um, I'll only buy stuff that I've actually seen and really like, but I'm going to get through that shelf of things that I haven't watched yet that are sitting there staring me. In the face. There's a video Matica, the local brick and mortar kind of cult video store. Uh, in town here, they're they're moving locations, so they were having uh, a sale this last weekend off all the stuff in the store. Like all the previously viewed movies in the store were fifty percent off, and so I went down there and I bought way more movies than I intended to. That's always that's always scary. We went to uh, Victoria for a couple of nights, and I'm shocked by. How many video stores there still are still are in Victoria? Because it feels like such a small city. But like I walked through at least two 
And one of them, we actually went in because um, I thought, well, I'll go and take a look. They, and they do rentals. Like, they're right downtown Victoria. They survive on rentals, and then they sell I mean, stuff. we have a few rental stores here in Vancouver still. Yeah, so I, it was really neat walking through. And, I mean, everything was – I wish I could remember what it was called because everything was so well-priced. I just – we didn't have a lot of time, and I had very limited space because I literally only took one bag, and it was already full. So I couldn't be like randomly buying DVDs, but man, if I'd had the time, everything like I looked at was between like eight and 10 bucks uh, for Blu-rays. And I'm like, oh, that's actually not bad. And they had some, some pretty decent stuff, but they didn't have any of the collector stuff sort of off to the side, like the criterion was mixed in with everything else. And off the top of my head, honestly, I don't remember what I'm looking for. I'm not really looking for anything. Just like browsing, and it's like, oh, that 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 looks good. That's how I'm buying stuff. Here, here here's a quick story for you. Just speaking of Criterion, uh, because I used to own a small chain of video stores back in the early 2000s, and then I ended up selling them in I think 2007. Uh, and I found out after the fact, someone told me this because in my stores I had a Criterion section. I had a section just like these are Criterion movies. And I guess the new owners, when they they bought my stores, I guess they just had their kid come in and go through the shelves and decide what to keep and what not to keep. And I guess everything on that in that Criterion section just got dumped into a bargain bin and sold off for like $5 a pop. So I don't know, whoever bought those movies got the bargain of a lifetime. No shit. Holy crap. Yeah. They had no idea what they were worth. And the kid was just like, Criterion, what's this? Oh, my God. Yeah. And, and I mean, and that's the thing. Like, some of those discs, they go out of print so fast. Yeah. And they become, like, really highly sought after. I, I, I remember I eventually sold my DVD of Criterion's release of The Killer. And the reason I did was because it was out of print. And I got $300 for it. That's nuts. Yeah. But uh, that was a, that, there's some really great material to, to check in here. And also in our top 10, I'll link to that as well in the show notes. If you missed that show, highly recommend taking a listen to that. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks to talk about some of the more recent stuff that we've been talking that we've been watching, because I'm sure there's new material that we've consumed in the last month that uh, we can talk about the movies and the shows continue to come. Oh, Absolutely. So until next time, insert catchphrase here. Opening and closing credits are Happy Alley by composer Kevin McLeod. For more information, visit incompetech.com.